Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Got an awesome episode 74 in store for you, a really special one for me because it's at the intersection of what this podcast is about. You know, on one side of the coin, it's people that are getting outside their comfort zone, that are trying to be more fulfilled in life, and you know, because they have a passion, they have a, a North Star that they're trying to go after, and they're not kind of listening to those society norms, you know, where it's like, hey, don't bang in the wall too much, don't get off the beaten path, you know, just kind of, you know, stay forward. They're going against the grain and saying, no, this is something that I believe in, that I'm passionate about, and I'm going to go for it. And on the second side, it's doing good in the world. It's trying to not only help people around you, but people that you've never met before and, and maybe that you might impact for generations that come. So it's doing things that can be really powerful, um, but also good in this world that, that we absolutely need um, you know, these days. So I had the chance to meet with two of the founding members of a group called Hope housing options for people with exceptionalities. Um, I spoke with uh, Dottie Foley and Aura Rea. Um, Diane Winans and uh, Ginny Dropkin, the other two members, they weren't able to join um, on this episode, but was appreciative that Aura and Dottie were able to come and, and share their story and kind of some of the things they're doing around growing these inclusive communities, not only here in the Carolinas, but also you know across the country and abroad. So Really great story um, of kind of how they all came together and how they're really trying to press forward to get this and, and make this happen. Um, so I look forward to hearing your guys' feedback on this episode. And if you could do one thing for me, if you are a developer, if you work for a local government, if you run a community, if you just have you know some background in business and marketing or something that you could help them out, get this, this message, this word out, or help them in their pursuit of getting this first community um, kind of off the ground, reach out to them. All the information's in the show notes, and, and I know they would absolutely appreciate um, any information, any insight, any help they could get. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into it. And my conversation with Dottie Foley and Aura Rea of Hope. Let's get it started. Aura, Dottie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to, to chat with you guys. And, you know, there's a lot of things I want to talk about as we get through here. Um, just just again, not just around, you know, we'll talk into some of the stuff you guys are doing with hope and, and with, uh, with disabilities and those type of things. It's something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, so I'll be excited to hear that a little bit. But I want to start off if it's okay. And maybe each of you guys, you know, speak for 30 seconds a minute, you know, little Cliff Notes version. Just a quick about, you know, kind of your background a little bit, and we'll dive deeper into each of those, but just kind of your background around how you got to this point um, with starting Hope and those type of things. Anything you can share with the audience to give some context as we jump into a deeper discussion? Sounds good. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's Dottie, and I'll I'll jump in here and then let Aura come on in. Um, so I'm, I'm a parent to four children. Our oldest son, Dylan, has a diagnosis of autism and some other diagnoses. Um, so I've been kind of on this path for quite a while. And people might understand this or hear that some people talk about autism as a spectrum, an autism spectrum disorder. So people fall anywhere on that spectrum. And I would say Dylan is probably middle toward the lower end, meaning he has higher support needs. Um, so, yep, I've been doing this for quite a while. And I'll, I'm going to pause and let Aura tell you her background, and then we'll talk about how we met and how we started what we're doing right now. 
Thanks, Daddy. Brian, this is Aura. Um, just like Daddy, I am a parent of a young man who has uh, initially diagnosed with something called Fragile X syndrome, which is a genetic disorder, and then added on the autism diagnosis. And he is 34, so I have also many, many years of learning to advocate for him. And my advocacy began at a very his early age when I decided that I did not want him to be segregated in schools. And as you can tell, I'm not from North Carolina, but New Jersey, where segregation is is big and popular. And so it was an ongoing struggle to get him included in the general education classrooms. And that is the root of, of advocacy for me. Hmm. How did you all, and I'm curious with, with both of the situations, at, at what extent, and we've talked about this before, and, and some of the audience knows, because I've shared this on other podcast episodes, you know, my son has ADHD, and he's seven. And we kind of, you know, you, we kind of saw early on when he was two, three, and, and started seeing some things and getting him checked out to see if, you know, where, where um, he maybe have it or not. At what age did you guys notice um, maybe mm. that there was some difference? Um, mm. Was that very early on? Did that come later? I'm, I'm curious about the timeline on that. For me personally, with, with my son, Brian, I had a sense something was mm -hmm. wrong by the time he was one year old. By the time he was two my um, gut feeling said something significantly wrong here. And as most doctors tend to do, they tell you, don't worry, they all catch up, but that's not the, the case. And so we, we did get the official diagnosis that he had this genetic disorder when he was five years old. But by that time, he had already started early intervention. Hmm. Yeah, and the same for me, um, Brian, I really found out I'd say we started noticing uh, Dylan wasn't meeting what is typically called developmental milestones really by six months. So he wasn't doing sitting up, turning over, um, which by the way, he met all the milestones just very delayed. Now remember that was 1991. So at that point, he didn't get a diagnosis of autism until he was about five, but what his diagnosis was at that time is called global developmental delay. and. Interestingly and ironically, I was a special education teacher teaching children with autism. And uh, I guess about seven, eight years into my teaching career, I had Dylan and I always tell people, I wanna go back to every single parent and apologize for what I thought I knew, right? So when you live it, it's so very different than when you're, and there's wonderful teachers out there, but when you're on the other side of the table, thinking that you can teach uh, children how to sit and read and toilet train, and then you have to do it on your own. It's just very different. Yeah, and I, I guess in that light, let's let's stick on that subject for just a second. You know, are there things, <laughs> we're lucky nowadays, I can go search on Google here and probably find anything I want to. But I know obviously at those times, it was a little different from a research standpoint, but is there anything, and, and you guys may do this for parents with kids, with younger kids, thinking of having kids, I don't know, um, anything they could do to look out for some of these things? I, I don't know, like maybe to maybe to look earlier on to get the help that's needed? Anything you'd point them to, or is it just a, a Google search and talk with their doctor? I would recommend that you seek out a good developmental pediatrician. Uh, that was the person that mm -hmm recognize the um, signs of the genetic disorder that Brian has. And I found them to be very helpful for families to guide you in the right direction. Of course, there are thousands of books on ADHD out there. It's helpful to have a professional that you can uh, feel 
comfortable with and trust to guide you in, in that direction. And there, there are also parent information centers in every state. And in North Carolina, the uh, ECAC, which is located out of Charlotte, and they do have an office in Raleigh, is a wonderful tool for families to go to learn how to advocate for their child in school. Uh, I found through my experience, and I'm sure Dottie did too, that information is powerful. And for those mm -hmm. families who understand the basic laws that are out there to protect individuals with disabilities in schools, the more that you know, the better position you will be in to advocate for your child. So I would highly recommend contacting ECAC to learn about the trainings that they have and the, and the information that they have to help you advocate for your son as he goes through school. And speaking on the school part, um, for both with, with Dylan and Brian, did, did they go to, you know, general schooling? Did they have to, was there a different, you know, did they get homeschooled? Did, how did, how, what, tell me about yeah. that in terms of their, their lives. Yeah, it's such a great question, Brian. And I would say, as the three of us know, the trajectory of every family and every child is going to be different. But so for for me and Dylan and our family, Dylan went to a to a regular school, mainstreamed into preschool and a, a kindergarten. Um, I will say we lived in Vermont at the time, and Vermont is really big on inclusion. There are no segregated classes. That is both the good news and the bad news. So meaning the bad news of that in 1994, full inclusion is wonderful, but if it's not fully included with the right amount of supports of trained people, right, to help, um, it, it doesn't work. So the, the short story of that is we, our trajectory is I eventually um, put my own kind of home program together and I did partial homeschooling for Dylan. He would be in a regular classroom for part of the day um, in a, and this is now I'm talking about middle school into high school. And then the rest of the day he was home with us, not actually home, right? Homeschool, the word is really a misnomer. It's really life school. He was out in his community doing um, just really great life skills. He actually, and he really thrived in that environment. Uh, Brian, I had the opposite experience with my son living in New Jersey, which has the most amount of segregated private schools in the country. They were very quick to put him into a private school, meaning a school that has only students with disabilities in it. And that was something back in 1990, that's what was done. And in 1991, I decided I didn't think that that was the the best placement for him. So at the age of when he was seven, I advocated very strongly for him to go to the community, the neighborhood school that our daughter went to, that our neighborhood kids went to. And other than, except for two years, he was in the general education uh, schools, in the general education classrooms with the support of a one-on-one -on -one aide. And to this day, I attribute that to, I believe, his ability to navigate in our community and in his jobs because he had always been surrounded by people who were not just other students who have disabilities. And can you define, and again, I'm not asking for the, the medical unless you want to, but like, like disabilities as a word, like, is there a certain 
is, is there a certain constraint that that goes in when someone hears the word disability or when they should use it? Is there anything you guys have learned over the years about that? I think one of the most important things is to be conscious of person first language. And what that means is if you come across uh, a young person who may have Down syndrome, you don't say, oh, look at that Down's child. You would say, oh, um, that that person with Down syndrome. You don't say, look at that blind guy over there. You'd say, look at that person who has blindness. So you don't identify the person by their disability. The disability is just a part of them. It doesn't define them. So it's something that I have always been a big believer in. Some people in the community don't care that call me an autistic person. I really don't care. But I think it's just safe to be aware of that language and to try not to define the person by their disability, regardless of what that disability is. I like how that's said. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't define that. That's really I think that's really important, um, especially in this era of judgment, you know, that for some reason, everyone's a, everyone's a, got a gavel. Um, so I think that's important that we take a step back and just have some different perspective on it. Um, so help me understand your guy, like how you all, Matt, because I, I think with with the uh, hope that we'll get into, there's four folks that are involved with that. But so how did you guys meet? Was it more recent? Did you know each other for 30 years and, and then just got back together? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's a well, first, it's a really cool story. Or and I met many, many years ago in a Facebook group. I'm looking over at Or, yeah. And we, so I lived down here in North Carolina or was in New Jersey thinking about moving. So she and I communicated back and forth. We, that was 10 years ago, eight years ago, we kind of lost touch, but we connected on, on a really good level at that point in terms of our advocacy and what we wanted in for our, for our boys. So fast forward in 2018, four families, essentially four moms living in the Triangle area, we met to just talk about what the future was going to hold for our sons and daughters who have intellectual developmental disabilities across a variety of needs from physical disabilities, some with just a need a few supports, others with more supports. We said, where are our kids going to live? Who's going to care for them? Are there, is their life going to hold dignity and purpose? And we just started talking about the most concerning thing is who's going to help care for them once we're no longer able to do so, right, once we're gone. So from that initial meeting emerged HOPE, and uh, HOPE is our, is our group, and it stands for Housing Options for People with Exceptionalities. So I'll let Aura jump in if you want to say more about that. Uh, that that's basically how that began and I we have found that obviously it is so much more than the four of us who have mm -hmm. these pressing needs uh, for housing for what we consider our adult children with disabilities. Yeah and so a couple of things I want to unpack there. One is I you know I like that you use the word exceptionalities. Yeah. Because you could use a lot of different words, right? You could use disabilities, you could never. And, and I think we've seen that very clear. You know, anyone that watches America's Got Talent with what Cody Lee did. Yeah. Um, winning America's Got Talent. And that was just inspiring. Um, I, I think if you did not shed a tear in one of his performances, you, I don't know if you have a heart uh, because those are pretty impactful. But mm -hmm. um, the the whole point I'm getting at is I, I think it's, again, it's that glass half full, glass half empty mentality. It's how you look at life, how you look at the perspectives around it. So I really like how you guys actually frame that of that, you know, housing options for people with exceptionalities. Now, the, to that idea, 
and, and go deeper if you want in this, you could have done a variety of things, right? You could have had a 5K walk. You could have do all this stuff. Why was this the path? Why did you feel this was the, the most need or maybe it was the most underserved portion um, in, in this kind of area or this realm? Well, we looked at what the existing options were for people like our guys um, once they reach adulthood and once they are out of school and ideally looking to move out of their parents' home. And the options are very limited. Most the of the most familiar, I think, people are uh, know the term group home, and they are prolific. And that is something that everyone just assumes your your adult child will move into a group home if not uh, if they're not able to live on their own. And we knew that there was an option, but most of us did not feel that that was the option that we could um, be truly happy with for for kids for a number of reasons. And so we we looked at what are the other options, and one of them was the idea of what they call an intentional community. And that is basically a planned residential community where people have shared visions and beliefs, and one that is inclusive. So we we are not looking to create a segregated environment where we have an enclave of 30 homes where only people with disabilities live in. That is a, a continuation of our beliefs and our principles that we believe an inclusive environment is what is best for people with disabilities to live in. And so that continued into what is our vision for where we would like to see not only our adult children live, but where a community that we or anyone would be happy to live in. Are, are there some of these communities that exist like in the U.S. or uh, overseas or anything nowadays? Yeah, yeah. We did lots of research, Brian. So there's a variety of what is sometimes called intentional communities. Now, some of them we've really taken what we think are the best of each of these communities to develop what we want to develop here in the triangle area in a supported inclusive community some as as aura alluded to are not inclusive they're they're selective of just people with intellectual disabilities intellectual and developmental disabilities and those are often what are called private pay meaning some parents are paying upwards of forty five fifty thousand dollars a year to have their adult son or daughter live in a wonderful but segregated in intentional community. Um, so that's not the model we're looking at. There are some other models that we are looking to replicate. One in particular is called Main Street, and that's in Rockville, Maryland. Um, there's Building Ohana out in Spokane, uh, Washington. So yeah, we just, um, there's lots of, lots of these and each one again has their own particular way they are building that community. And I would just finish by saying for me, this is it's really, we're, we're moving away from an old paradigm of institutions and group homes. In North Carolina, 6.7% of individuals with an intellectual disability live in institutions compared to 1.7% is the national rate. So as a group called HOPE, us, uh, and the group is about 70, 80 people now, we're just looking to change the paradigm. 
We want to build a community of potentially 100, 130 homes. It's not exact. And a small percentage, 15 to 20 percent of those homes would be set aside for people with what, what is often called IDD, intellectual developmental disabilities. And so give me an idea and, and maybe for the folks out there um, to catch up as well. What So someone might ask as a general question, well, there's communities now that are you know potentially mixed or you know where could they live with a any any community right now why would the normal community that we live in wouldn't fit for for them is it is it the way the just the community in general is formed is it the actual houses and how they're set up what are some of the differences i guess of a uh, um, as you guys are talking about some of these planned or intentional communities um, that aren't segregated, that, that have a mix, but is there certain characteristics that are different from the norm? That's a great question. And, and Brian, that's something that everyone asks us. Why can't you just buy six or seven or eight or 10 condos in a community that's already existing and move your guys into it? And what we have found is that that uh, integration could happen or it could not happen. It's it's really up to chance that maybe your neighbors will welcome those individuals into that community. I often think about something like a brand new community, such as the one that I live in, where pretty much everyone moved in at the same time, give or take a year or so. And it was a wonderful community in the beginning in that everyone got to know everyone. There were were lots of opportunities for outreach for people to get to know each other and it really was a wonderful community and we want something that is going to start from the beginning with the awareness and the understanding that this community will have people with disabilities in it and sorry for that uh we want people to move in with that understanding that this is a community where we all want to live together. And we, we envision senior citizens, uh, single people, people with families, all moving into this community from the get-go with that understanding that it is a community where we all look out for each other. And hey, if, if there's a senior citizen living across the street from me, I can help them bring their garbage out and they can maybe come in and help help me um, or help my child put together a meal. It, it is a, a different mindset than just placing a group of people into an existing neighborhood. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and what would be, you know, to share, because I think you mentioned, I think Brian is 34. Yes. And Dylan, if I'm doing my goat math correct, is he yeah. like 28, 29? You got it, 29. Okay. Man. Math was my best subject. They, there weren't many subjects good in school, but that was one of my better ones. Um, so with them, so what's the long-term benefit then? So again, let's say, let's say they were in that community today. What does 10, 15, 20 years look like down the road? It, how is that going to help them? And I'm just more, is my curiosity, like, is there certain things that'll impact them in terms of helping them change um, for the better, helping them improve, have more inclusion? How do you guys foresee that? Yeah. Well, first, none of us, right, can predict the future. Um, so my hope, and I think our hope, is that we are creating an intentional community. And the word intentional here is is really important, that 
people are intentionally saying, I want to move in. I want to be a neighbor of Dylan's. I want to raise social capital here where we all have a shared sense of identity. I'm going to watch out for you as you age. You're going to watch out for me, as Aura said. And Brian, I want to just tell you something quick. Is So Dylan is one of the really lucky ones in the state of North Carolina. He is using a Medi his Medicaid waiver called the Innovations Waiver. He now lives in his own home that we bought for him, very tiny little uh, condo in Chapel Hill. And I often, Aura has heard me say this often, Dylan here by all accounts looks like he's living this really wonderful life. He's got a lot of support staff helping him through his day, connected. But it's what I call, and what I've, I haven't coined this term, the illusion of inclusion. Meaning here he is smack dab in the middle of beautiful Chapel Hill, walk to services, but he doesn't know his neighbors in the community of a hundred condominiums. Nobody talks to one another. Dylan's, the people that Dylan's most connected with are paid staff and family. And our goal with hope and this intentional community is that people without disabilities say, I wanna be in this community where neighbors share a common value, where whether you have a disability or not, where we've all come into this community together to grow and to age together. And so how far along, like where are you at today? Where's the kind of pin on the map today where you're at? And then what's kind of the, what's kind of the need forward to maybe take the next few steps? Can you share that a little bit? Yes, thanks for asking. Um, we are just at the beginning of this journey of trying to reach this vision that we have. Obviously, as a nonprofit, uh, which we're hoping to acquire very soon, we do not have the funds to buy a parcel of land and start developing homes. The piece that we need are the developers or the builders who have a like mindset, a mission that is similar in that they are not just looking to build to build developments, to build communities, um, to make a lot of money, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but to have a social uh, mindset that I want to build a community that also has um, other attributes. And we have been in touch with quite a lot of developers. Some are clearly not interested and we understand that and some are very interested. And that is the piece that we are at right now is trying to identify a developer who is willing to uh, collaborate with us to help us accomplish this mission. And so what about from the, the local government standpoint? You know, we talked about Chapel Hill. Obviously, we live in Cary. Um, you know, if what, what can they, you know, if Mayor Weinbrooks listen to this town of Cary or the councils, like what can they do as a group to help like an initiative or, or is it not? Is it kind of out of the jurisdiction's hands to do anything to help something like this? Well, we certainly have explored that option. And uh, a few of us have, have met with the housing uh, individuals in the town of Cary and they have been very um, open and willing to listen to what it is we are trying to accomplish. They have been rather um, 
honest in they that they feel something like this is quite down the road for Carrie. Uh, they are trying to approach the idea of affordable housing in the town of Cary and obviously meeting with resistance as most towns do. Uh, we feel that we have a better chance in discussions that we have had with the town of Chapel Hill and the mayor herself and feel that they are aligned with what our mission is. So that is the location that we are trying to focus on, but we're open to anybody who's willing to speak to us. And, and oh, if I, thank you. I would just add to that, and Aura said that so well, just to add, for example, in Chapel Hill, they are open and we have met with them a few times looking at land owned by Chapel Hill. So Chapel Hill owns um, four, four to seven parcels of land, varying acres. And they're interested in working with us, but who we need to bring to the table is the town, Hope, which is our group, and a developer. So it's kind of like we say we're kissing a lot of frogs, but we have to find the one where a developer says, I'm in, I'm committed to this vision. So that's where we are. Well, I, I, again, my curiosity, just this is how I am. Why would a developer not, like what would be a downside of doing this? Because they get to develop, maybe they're selling the home. So there's some profit there potentially for them. I don't know, I could be wrong, but it, why would a developer not want to be involved? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's individual to the developer. I think it's really where their, you know, what their vision, their their ethics, their 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 goals. But I would say that um, the 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 upside of a developer is we're bringing to the table potentially fifteen to twenty people who either may need affordable housing or the families may buy market rate housing from them. The downside is the developer might say, well, I'm not sure I want to build a neighborhood where there are people with differences, right? So, which is pretty disappointing in the year 2019, but that certainly could happen. I gotcha. So I guess going, so going forward then, right? You have some balls in the air that you're trying to, what's the ultimate, you can't say tomorrow because that's almost impossible, but like, what is the, in a, in a perfect world, if things did work out how, how you guys saw, what would be the ultimate thing to have like the, you know, the, the, whatever it is, the ribbing cutting, the, the shovel throwing ceremony, whatever they call it, to launch the, uh, the opening of the, the property. Right. You mean timing wise, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. Timing. Yeah, what are yeah. you, what are the, what are the hopes? Is it a year from now? Is it three years, five years? Like what's kind of the realistic, um, yeah. It's vision, great. I guess, of that. Right, right. Realistic when you're working with a town, right? Because there are there are hoops to jump through. So, I mean, I'd say realistic four, five years. I would love it to not be longer than that. I think it could potentially be shorter than that. Um, but the we're, we have a steep learning curve on Hope's End, although we're learning every day about uh, building regulations and policies from town to town. And yeah, so so we look at barriers just as, okay, so we need to cross that barrier. What's the next one? And we've crossed many right now. Um, people told us a few years ago, this could never happen. We stand on the shoulders of parents who are now in their, many have passed, some in their 80s and 90s, whose children never had this opportunity, right? Because their kids were institutionalized. This is a new way of looking at things. Some people are resistant to it. 
We're just looking for a developer and a town who says, we want to be an exemplar for the nation. We want to build a community that's an example and a model that can spread across the U.S. So to complete that, yep, I'd love to see me moving Dylan in in five years or shorter. Mm -hmm. And what about from a, so we're talking about obviously, hey, you know, let's get a developer to sign on. Let's get maybe a, a jurisdiction to, to sign on from a funding standpoint. Is that something like, I mean, do you, is this just your, the hope is, hey, if they, if they contribute some stuff, we might be able to kind of get started and put some stakes in the ground or like, is there a, a, I don't know if funding is the best word, but basically capital that's needed to get this project off the ground. Well, part, part of the discussion is including the uh, need for affordable housing and Chapel Hill has made a very clear, uh, distinct, I think unique uh, position that any developer in the town of Chapel Hill has to make a percentage of that development affordable homes. Uh, Carrie is nowhere near that position at this point. So some of those homes that uh, the developer might will build ideally will include some affordable homes. And that means people have to meet very strict criteria as to what will make them eligible to buy an affordable home. Many of the families, a uh, number of the families that we, we have in our group are saying that I will buy a market price home for my child or my, my adult child. And, and so what we bring to the table, as Dottie said, are those buyers. If, if a developer has a hundred homes and 20% of those are for people with disabilities, I would, I think, comfortably say that those 20 homes could sell out within the first weekend because we have so many parents who have this need and who are looking for this kind of a community. So we bring the buyers to the table for the developer. We don't bring money, we bring buyers. And that is money, that translates to money for developers. And financially, funding-wise, I think it's important to understand that in the state of North Carolina, um, as Daddy mentioned before, there is something called a Medicaid waiver. And for those families who have the waiver for their child, it entails having those support services financially funded by the state. For those who do not, and I happen to be one of those who do not have the waiver, and I am one of 12,000 people in the state of North Carolina who are on a waiting list to get that waiver. I have been on this waiting list for nine years. I am told there could be another two to four years being optimistic that I can finally get this waiver for my son, which would then enable him to move out of our home and be able to live in a home with the supports that he needs because he cannot and will never be able to live independently. So that is a huge funding barrier for many families because they don't have that Medicaid waiver. I mean, what y'all are trying to do, I think is tremendous. Um, I mean, this is, you know, I'm the, one of the reasons I want to talk with y'all is just to kind of showcase like, there, you know, because one of the things would just get started, right? It could be a variety of things. The fact that you guys are, you know, it's, you know, four, four families that just got together and said, hey, there's a bigger need here. There's a mission behind it. There's some things we want to help impact. I think is just tremendous um, that y'all are doing that. So glad to have you on and kind of share some of that. Um, where can everyone find more information about HOPE? We do have a Facebook page called Hope, 
and you do have to ask to be invited. We are also in the process of getting our website completed, which will be hope and hopenorthcarolina.org will be the website. It's not up yet. Um, and again, we want to thank you for inviting us to talk about this. And one of the things that I loved about your podcast was the name, Just Get Started. And it is something that we recognize as, as parents that we have to do that. And, and as Dottie has said many, many times, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We cannot wait for someone to knock on our door and say, hey, I've got a place for you. We have to take charge. We have to take control and try and change something to make it a better quality of life for, for our adult children. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And again, I appreciate you guys taking some time out to share the story and good luck to you. Again, I think it's a great mission. Um, I, I think it'll get done. Um, I have confidence uh, that the good will come out of this. So um, good luck to you guys going forward. I'll sync some of those up in the uh, in the show notes as well. Even though the website's not up, maybe if someone listens to this in the future, it will be. Um, so I'll make sure I sync some of those up. So again, thank you all so much for joining and uh, certainly appreciate you being on. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview and look forward to having you for the next one. And if you are getting value out of this podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave me a quick review, let me know how I'm doing. It's the only way I'm going to be able to make this podcast better each and every episode. And go connect with me online at Brian Andreco on Instagram or Twitter, or head over to my website, brianandreco.com, where I house the podcasts, you know, my CrossFit journey, a ton of blog articles. I even have a now page to kind of keep people up to speed on the last couple months. Um, at worst, it gives my mom peace of mind to keep tabs on me and know that I'm doing okay. So I hope you guys continue to do great. Um, I look forward to having you on another episode and keeping connected online. Take care, have a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon.